and he was transfigured before him, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. This morning we'll take a closer look at today's gospel. And to do that, we'll rely principally upon the works of Cornelius Elapide, St. Thomas, and Father Charles Garside. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth him up into a high mountain apart. Where did this happen? Great doctors of the church, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. John Damascene, the Venerable Bede, and other theologians explicitly teach that Christ is transfigured on Mount Tabor. Why did Christ bring Peter, James, and John as witnesses? The great doctor of the church, St. Hilary of Poitiers, states that the three men who were taken up symbolize the future selection of the people of God from a threefold origin, the sons of Shem, the sons of Ham, and the sons of Japheth. And we can see that as we look around our own congregation. The great doctor of the church, St. Anselm, states that these three apostles denote that those whom God considers worthy above others to behold the vision and the glory of himself are of three types. Peter denotes the fervent in charity, for he was ardent in that virtue. John, a virgin, signifies virgins. James, the first martyr among the apostles, denotes those who suffer and martyrs. Again, Peter stands for those who are rocks, that is to say, strong and constant in faith and virtue. John stands for the chaste. James, the supplanter, stands for those who tread on vices and trample them underfoot for such are worthy of the vision of God. Verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. What was Christ doing here? According to Silapide, Christ showed his apostles the external glory of his body, which was an indication of his divinity, that by it, as through a chink, they might in some way behold the glory and majesty of his Godhead, even though veiled by his body. The fathers teach that Christ did not transfigure himself before his three apostles so as to manifest his divinity directly to them, as he does to the saints in heaven, which is their blessedness. For the divine nature cannot be beheld by any means with the eyes of the flesh. Close quote. Why did Christ do this? St. Thomas states, quote, Christ wished to be transfigured in order to show men his glory and to rouse men to a desire of it. Now men are brought to the glory of eternal beatitude by Christ, not only those who lived after him, but also those who preceded him. Consequently, it was fitting that witnesses should be present from among, among those who preceded him, namely Moses and Elias, and from those who followed after him, namely Peter, James, and John, that in the mouths of two or three witnesses this word might stand. Close quote. Cornelius Elapide lists more reasons why Christ was transfigured. One, that by means of this glory and brightness, and by the testimony of Elias and Moses, he might prove his divinity to his apostles and show that it was hidden or veiled beneath his humanity. Two, that he might forewarn his disciples not to lose confidence when they should behold him nailed to the cross on Mount Calvary. Three, according to the doctors of the church, St. Ephraim of Syria, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. John Damascene, and St. Basil the Great, 
that Christ might indicate that he would come again in this matter with great power and majesty to judge the world. Therefore, Elias also appeared, who will be the precursor of Christ when he comes to judgment. Four, that he might elicit and increase the faith and hope and courage and zeal of the apostles and the rest of the faithful to undergo bravely for the sake of the gospel whatever trials and crosses may come in the hope of attaining a similar glory at the resurrection. The line that his face did shine as a sun should remind us of what prophet in the Old Testament? Moses. As St. Hilary of Podier points out, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after the glory of the Lord appeared to him and he received the tablets of the law, his face was radiant with light as we can see in Exodus 34. But in the case of Moses, this splendor came from without, whereas the glory of Christ was from within. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. Why were Moses and Elias present? Elias is also known as Elijah. That great doctor of the church, St. Augustine, states, quote, Moses signifies the law, Elias signifies the prophets, while the gospel is signified by the Lord. It's for this reason these three appeared on the mountain, where he showed the glory of his countenance and clothing to his disciples. For he appeared in the middle, between Moses and Elijah, as it were the gospel receiving testimony from the law and the prophets. Close quote. St. Thomas explains, as St. John Chrysostom says, Moses and Elias are brought forward for many reasons. And first of all, because the multitude said Christ was Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he brings the leaders of the prophets with him, that by doing so at least they might see the difference between the servants and their Lord. Another reason was that Moses gave the law while Elias was jealous for the glory of God. Therefore, by appearing together with Christ, they show how falsely the Jews accused him of transgressing the law and of blasphemously appropriating to himself the glory of God. A third reason was to show that Christ has power of death and life, and that he is the judge of the dead and the living, by bringing with him Moses, who had died, and Elias, who still lived. A fourth reason was because, as Luke says, in chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke with Christ about his passion and death. Therefore, in order to strengthen the hearts of his disciples with a view to this, he sets before them those who would expose themselves to death for God's sake, since Moses braved death in opposing Pharaoh and Elias in opposing King Ahab. A fifth reason was that he wished his disciples to imitate the meekness of Moses and the zeal of Elias. St. Hilary of Podier adds a sixth reason, namely, in order to signify that Christ had been foretold both by the law, which Moses gave them, as well as by the prophets, of whom Elias was the principal example. Close quote. How did Moses and Elias get to Mount Tabor? Cornelius Elapidae. The soul of Moses was translated from limbo of the fathers to earth by an angel. And when Moses was brought up to the earth, St. Thomas states that an angel formed a body out of materials at hand so that Moses would be visible. Everyone agrees it was Elias himself who appeared in his own body. For Elias was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and is still alive, that he may come again and contend with Antichrist. From paradise, therefore, or from the place to which he was translated, he was suddenly transferred by an angel to Mount Tabor that he might be a witness to Christ in his transfiguration. Close quotes. 
Could you please explain what it means to say that Elias was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire? Great doctor of the church, St. Gregory the Great, explains that when it is said Elias was taken up into heaven, the term heaven refers to the aerial heaven in which birds fly, which is why in Matthew 8.20 they are called birds of heaven. The Elias was carried up into this heaven in order that he might be suddenly conveyed to some secret region of the earth where he might live in great peace of the spirit and the flesh until he shall return at the end of the world and pay the debt of debt. Close quotes. St. Thomas states, quote, Elias was taken up into the atmospheric heaven. Now remember, when the ancients refer to the heavens, they have, the, the heavens are used in plural. The first heaven, what we call, the, the, the first heaven is what we call the atmosphere, the air. The second heaven is what we would call outer space. And the third heaven is what we would call heaven. Like when St. Paul talks about being tra- translated third heaven, he, that's what we mean by heaven. But the, the, the ancients called the heavens the things above the earth. So atmosphere, outer space, heaven. Okay, so St. Thomas states, Elias was taken up into the atmospheric heaven, but not into the heaven which is the boat of the saints. And likewise, Enoch was translated into the earthly paradise. Close quote. Now who is Enoch, and what does he have to do with Elias? Enoch is one of the patriarchs. He's the father of Methuselah and the great-grandfather of Noah. We're all descended from him. Centuries before the great flood, he was taken up and translated somewhere. Elias and Enoch are now together somewhere, but at the end of the world, they'll return to battle the Antichrist. Elias will have a special mission to preach and convert the Jews, while Enoch will have a special mission to preach and convert the Gentiles. It's always been understood of Elias, but there was some debate amongst some of the ancient fathers as to the role of Enoch. It's one of the glories of the scholastic theologians to have worked this out in detail by sifting through the scriptures and fathers. As that great doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellarmine states, quote, It is either heresy or proximate to heresy to deny that Enoch and Elias will personally return. Enoch and Elias are still living. And when the Antichrist comes, they will oppose him and preserve the elect in the faith of Christ and convert the Jews. Close quote. You can read about that in the book of the Apocalypse in chapter 11, verses 3 to 12. They're the two witnesses. The great Spanish theologian Francisco Suarez states, quote, It is of the faith that neither Enoch nor Elias have ever died. Holy Scripture is explicit on this point. In Genesis 5.22, we read that Enoch walked with God and was seen no more because God took him. When Ecclesiasticus 44.16, we read that Enoch pleased God and was translated into paradise that he may give repentance to the nations. And in Hebrews 11.5, we read that Enoch was translated that he should not see death and he was not found because God had translated him. Of Elias, it's declared in Ecclesiasticus 48.9 and 10, that he was taken up in a whirlwind of fire, in a chariot of fiery horses, and it is registered in the judgments of times to appease the wrath of the Lord, to reconcile the heart of the Father to the Son, and to restore the tribes of Jacob. By being registered in the judgments of times, is to be understood that he is destined at some future period to appease the wrath of the Lord. Close quote. Now, parenthetically, anyone that, that uh, understands that these men are both still alive shouldn't have any trouble with the age of the patriarchs. After all, Elias was already almost as old as Methuselah at the time of the Transfiguration. And that was pert near 2,000 years ago. And it's for sure that, he, that Henoch is older than Methuselah. He's Methuselah's father. And he's still alive, and he will be until the end of the world. Where are Henoch and Elias right now? 
Suarez thinks that Enoch may have lived in the original paradise until the great flood, and then after being in some way divinely kept from harm, he is transferred to a hiding spot, which may possibly be on the same site that paradise was before it was destroyed by the waters. Wherever their abode may be, Suarez does not but doubt but that Enoch and Elias are intensely happy in their mutual friendship and that they live in a place which, if it's not the paradise of Adam and Eve, is equally beautiful. We must believe that they're alive, but we can't be sure where they are right now. St. Augustine comments, quote, There are questions in regard to which, without any prejudice to that faith by which we are Christians, there either may be ignorance as to what is the truth, and therefore any definitive judgment is suspended, or we may make a guess, which on account of our human and frail misgivings may be inconsistent with fact. As, for instance, when the question is raised as to the site of paradise, which God placed man after forming from the dust, because a Christian does not doubt of the existence of paradise, or when it is asked where Elias, Elias and Henoch are at this moment, for we doubt not that they are alive in the bodies in which they were born. Close quote. What have they been doing all this time? Suarez. They have the delight of receiving immense consolations from God, divine illuminations, and frequent revelations. With regard to Elias, it is clear from the gospel that he saw Christ at the transfiguration, and we may presume that Henoch also has had, at some period beheld him. Close quote. According to Silapidae, it is credibly believed by some, including St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, St. Nisiphorus, the doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, that during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Christ spent time with Elias and Enoch. Because the status of Elias and Enoch almost demand this as a right, given that for the sake of Christ, their blessedness has been delayed and deferred for so many thousands of years while they remain living on earth, instead of being able to go to heaven to contemplate and enjoy God like the, all the rest of the saints. Christ visited so that at the very least they might receive from him the mission they will carry out at the end of the world when they come back to battle for the true faith against the Antichrist and then die as martyrs for Christ. Close quote. Why are two men being sent as forerunners to herald Christ's second coming? Suarez states that when Christ first came into the world, his immediate purpose was to gather into his fold the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he had, therefore, only one forerunner, St. John the Baptist, who was a Jew. But at his second coming, our Lord will send two forerunners, a Gentile and a Jew, Enoch and Elias, because he will be coming then not to the Jews specially, but to his universal church that has been gathered out of both the Jews and the Gentiles. But even after the transfiguration, weren't the apostles still confused as to the role of Elias? Yes, they were confused. We can see this in the verse immediately following today's gospel, where we read, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elias must come first? Cornelius the Lapidae explains, The reason for this question was that these three apostles had seen Elias in the transfiguration and then seen him going away. They are wondering why he departed, when he ought to have remained and become the forerunner of Christ in his glorious kingdom, according to the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, a prophecy quoted and taught by the scribes. Close quote. Okay, so at this point, Peter, James, and John know who our Lord is, that he truly is the Son of God and the Messiah. 
What they don't understand is exactly how Elias fits into this picture. So the apostles are wondering why Elias departed when he ought to have remained to become the forerunner of Christ according to this prophecy. I will read Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I shall send you Elias the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now this prophecy isn't confusing for us since we read it as something that will be fulfilled at the end of the world just before the second coming. For example, the Hadock commentary explains the meaning of Malachi's phrase, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers as follows. By bringing over the Jews to the faith of Christ, Elias shall reconcile them to their fathers, that is to say, the patriarchs and prophets, whose hearts for many ages have been turned away from the Jews because of their refusing to believe in Christ. Okay, so for us it's easy to understand, but the apostles were understandably confused since the scribes had explained things otherwise, according to the Asilapidae. If the scribes did not distinguish between the first and second coming of Christ, just as even now the Jews fail to do so. For they deny that Christ has come and are expecting him as still about to come because Elias has not yet appeared to point him out. Close quote. So our Lord responds to their confusion by answering, Elias indeed shall come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. So also the Son of Man shall suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them of John the Baptist. So the Lord clears up the confusion by identifying John the Baptist as the type or foreshadowing of Elias, as the one who had come in the spirit of Elias. At this point, they can see that the literal and true Elias will be the, will be the forerunner in the second coming. Why then, when the Pharisees asked St. John the Baptist if he were Elias, did he answer no? Because the object of the Pharisees in questioning him was not to find out the truth, but to set a trap for him with words. And so St. John the Baptist answered them truly in their sense of the name. He was not literally Elias, just in spirit. But because of his wickedness, their wickedness, he did not explain himself any further. Quinius Lapide, it was not because Elias had not yet come that the Jews persisted in not believing him to be Messiah, but because they were perverse and obstinate in their wickedness. For that Elias, who had been promised before Christ for Advent, namely St. John the Baptist, had already come, had already pointed out Christ to the scribes, that he was the Messiah. But they would not believe John. Therefore, Christ adds, and they knew him not. That is to say, they refused to recognize that he was the forerunner of Christ. But they have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. That is, when he reproved their vices, they hated and persecuted him and delivered him up to Herod, who sought his life and ultimately killed him with their approval. Close quote. Our Lord closes his explanation with the observation that he too will suffer from the same men who killed St. John the Baptist. Is there any particular reason the Jews will listen to Elias when he returns? They didn't listen to St. John the Baptist. Both Elias and Enoch will have the power to confirm their preaching with spectacular miracles. Cornelius Lapide explains that at the end of the world, Elias will have the same power he had in ancient times to call, cause fire to fall from heaven and devour the enemies of God, both by means of his prayers and also simply by his command. They also have the power to simply close the heavens and stop the rain at will 
just as Elias had in the olden days. They'll also be given the power that was given, early given to Moses in his battle with the Pharaoh to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with whatever sort of plagues they wish. Interestingly enough, even in our own day and age, the devout Jews are still on the look for Elias. In fact, just last night, devout Jews prayed to God to send Elias. I checked this with an Orthodox Jewish friend. He's being moved by the Lord. Please pray for him, and especially for his wife and kids, because he believes the Lord is the Messiah. He believes in Our Lady. He believes the Catholic faith, but he's in, in a predicament because he's got, a, he's got a family, and that's not where they're at, so pray for him. Anyway, Elias is invoked on Saturday evening on the ceremonies that conclude the Sabbath day. During the closing hymn, they ask God to send Elias during the following week, and I quote from their, their hymn. Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, let him come quickly in our day with the Messiah, the son of David. Not only that, he's also invoked in his role as a forerunner of the Messiah during Jewish grace after meals when they pray, May the merciful one sent us Elijah the prophet may be remembered for good, and he will herald for us tidings of goodness, salvation, and comfort. Verse 4, And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. Cornelius Lapidus, Why did Peter desire that these three tabernacles should be made, since the blessed do not need dwellings? And he answers, Peter said this toward the close of the transfiguration when Moses and Elias were about to depart, nor he might keep them from leaving. Verse 5, And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and lo, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Why was the cloud bright? St. John Chrysostom, St. John Damascene, explained that the cloud was bright to signify the difference between the old law in the new law. In the old law, God appeared on the mountain to the Hebrews in a black cloud because that law was full of shadows and terrors. In the new law, he appears in a bright cloud over the mountain because the new law brings truth, glory, and love. What is the significance of the word overshadowed? Well, the Greek word for the overshadowing of the cloud is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation. What is the significance of the voice from the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Quinesa Lapide explains that the words, Hear ye him, does not pertain to, quote, Moses, who has gone away, but to Christ himself as the new lawgiver of the new law. Hear ye, and believe ye, and obey his commands in all things. There's an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says about Christ, the Lord thy God will raise up to thee a prophet of thy nation and of thy brethren like unto me. Him thou shalt hear. These words, hear him, were not said of Christ at his baptism because he was then for the first time shown to the world. But here he was sent forth as a teacher and a lawgiver. Therefore, as Tertullian, St. Leo the Great, and St. John Damascene and others maintain, these words denote the canceling of the old law and the commencement of the new law. Verses 6 through 8. And disciples hearing fell upon their face and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. This symbolized that the law and the prophets had disappeared now that Christ was present, yielding their place to him, and that only he remained who brought to men the true light 
of the gospel law. Verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and the Venerable Bede say that until after his resurrection, our Lord does not wish this to be preached among the people, lest the marvel of the thing should seem incredible, lest the cross, falling after so great a glory, should cause offense. Let's close. The presence of Moses and Elias, the miraculous voice from heaven, the cloud of glory descending upon the mountain, and the transfiguration of our Lord definitively reveals to the apostles the true identity of our Lord. It strengthens them in their faith. They're greatly strengthened for the upcoming passion and death of our Lord and given clear assurances that despite his betrayal, death, and apparent failure, he'll ultimately triumph by means of his glorious resurrection. And yet, in spite of all that, excepting for St. John, when faced with the brutal reality of the passion of our Lord, the other two flee. They run away. They abandon our Lord in the hour of his greatest distress. What was the difference? What did St. John do to remain faithful to the bitter end? He stayed close to Our Lady. He stayed close to Our Lady. Let us take care that we don't flee. Let us take care that we don't abandon our Lord as we enter more deeply into the passion of the Church. Stay close to Our Lady. Stay close to Our Lady.